I am your host, Jason Hopkins, and joined today with my co-host, licensed clinical social worker, Amy Staley, and our guest, Sam Wilson, who is currently serving as a coordinator of the Adolescent Support Group at the Full Circle Program. Sam, I'm so glad to have you here today. As I was mentioning before we hopped onto this, this recording, um, this is such an important conversation for us to have. I mean, youth are struggling at an, an alarming rate with substance use and abuse. And really, these conversations are about, you know, working with the people who have the boots on the ground of doing, doing the day-to-day -day work with, with youth and the challenges that they're facing. So thank you for being here. We're thrilled to have you. Yeah, um, thank you. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. awesome. Thank yep. you. We really appreciate having you on. And um, I know Jason mentioned that Sam is coming to us from Full Circle. He's actually been there for six years. And for those who don't know, the Full Circle program is a youth at risk recovery community organization providing peer support to adolescents and young adults. Um, he did also grow up here in the Denver metro area and shares that uh, part of what led him to this community and to this um, population was his own journey with recovery. And so, Sam, uh, we really appreciate all that you do for youth and that you're here to be a part of this conversation to talk to us about what's happening um, and what you're seeing through through your work. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and what brought you um, to the podcast today and, and why you're feeling excited to be here yeah um let's see where to start with that so i struggled a lot as a teenager um had a, a pretty serious drug and alcohol issue uh, i was fortunate enough to get sober at the age of 17 in um actually a, a similar program to what uh to what we do at full circle and a couple of years into my journey in recovery, I found that uh, helping others and, and trying to give away what was given to me was something that I was hugely passionate about. So, um, so that's sort of how I got involved with Full Circle. And, and the reason I'm excited to be here today is um, anything that promotes young people getting the support that they need, I'm really grateful to be a part of. And that's, that's ultimately why Full Circle exists. And um, it's what I found I'm the most passionate about. So, Sam, I love it. As somebody who has been through my own journey of recovery, you know, I recognize the power and the value in supporting other people with what we've learned that are also on the same path. So, kudos to you for your sobriety and for your willingness to show up and serve other people. I, I guess just to jump into the conversation, this is a big conversation. We have a lot of questions, mm -hmm. but but really, as a starting point, you know, you and I were talking beforehand about, you know validating the fact that there's not a, a single statistic that that shows us that collectively, you know, substance use and misuse disorders are going down, depression, anxiety rates are going down, like none of these things that that people are struggling with youth specifically, none of them are trending downward. Can you give us a little bit of a firsthand account of like, what are you seeing at full circle around the demand for the the services that you guys provide? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's been, I mean, it's been a pretty astonishing journey, uh, especially out in Denver. You know, I think the, um, the need for support for adolescents has been really evident in just the, the number of young people that are participating in the program, uh, which, uh, you know, in 2020, 2021, in the, in the heart of the pandemic, 
um, participation here uh, doubled, tripled. I mean, it just, it went up a, a huge oh, amount. Wow. Um, yeah. So, so we know that there's a lot of, a lot of young people in pretty desperate need um, of help. So when you say double or tripled, like give us contextually, like how many people are you guys serving a year? So a year, we probably, it's around probably 300 families. Wow. Yeah. And you're and primarily working with youth that are 13 to 18, right? Yeah. So we have two support groups. Um, the support group that I coordinate is the, is for ages 13 to 17. And then we have another support group that works with uh, 18 to 25 ish year olds. Now, are you, are you serving a certain population of, of addiction or are you serving youth that are addicted across a spectrum of different um, substances? Well, so the, the way that we talk about Full Circle is we are a youth at risk recovery community organization. So and youth at risk is a pretty broad term. Um, and we actually pretty explicitly tell these guys that this isn't an addiction program necessarily. Um, obviously, we, we have young people who struggle with that, but, but we sort of have the whole range. So we have uh, some kids involved in the program that have never touched a drug in their life that are attending for um, you know, self-harm issues or eating disorders or, um, and we've got, we've got some kids that have used marijuana a handful of times and have gotten in trouble at school and with their parents and are, and are looking to uh, redirect their path before they potentially develop a more serious issue. And we have some kids who have um, been using fentanyl and you know, the, the most dangerous stuff out there. So. Uh, our intention and, and goal as a program is to really be a resource for any young person who needs hope and, and needs help. I love Thank that. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, you just mentioned fentanyl. You also talked about marijuana. Can you talk to us a little bit and educate for those who are listening? What types of, of substances are you seeing? Um, I mean, in addition to those, I think that Oftentimes, it's really easy for us as adults to go into our heads about what we were exposed to or what we know people used when we were certain ages and at times might not have a full snapshot of um, what youth are exposed to today. Can you talk to us about the substances that you're hearing youth talk about or you're seeing folks come in that um, they've, what they've been using? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think one of the one of the biggest things that we've noticed is it seems like over time, uh, teenage culture or youth culture and the drug culture have become synonymous hmm. in some respects. Um, like it's almost the, the way it feels is, is like that's an, that's an expected part of adolescence, hmm. you know, like, uh, you know, teenagers are, in, in a lot of ways, it, it seems like that's just the, the norm for a lot of them. And, and as a result of the, the drug culture becoming that much more prevalent, uh, the availability of substances has as well. So I think, you know, most of the kids that we work with um, have just about anything and everything available to them if they want it. 
which is which is scary. So yeah, it's uh, it it just seems like that's normal at this point for for a lot of teenagers. Um, it's normal to get high. That's that's what makes them cool. Um, in some uh, you know, for some kids, the uh, they feel like they're weird if they don't. Hmm. You know, and that's really validated by the work that we've done in meeting with youth in the community over the last five years. And just, you know, I, I want to mirror what I've heard over and over about. It's kind of like the T-shirt you put on to be cool. You know, mm -hmm. and I'm not trying to normalize this conversation. And it sounds like it is part of a normal conversation among youth. But it's really dangerous to think that we've moved into the space that fitting in has has become culturally part of something that has the potential to kill you yes, yes. and not, not only that like the development i mean especially the group that you're working with brains are still developing i mean I, mm -hmm. I i mean all of us um when you're exposing your brain to drugs while it's still developing that's obviously going to impact that as well and so um yes. yeah and you know, can you talk to us a little bit about when when you're discussing the program and you're discussing kind of that people are using kind of a, across the spectrum of substances. Um, what does that look like if somebody was, were to engage in some type of a program? Because there's there's definitely a lot of different thoughts out there um, it, within kind of a recovery world as far as, um, you know, abstinence only or engaging. Like, can you talk to us a little bit about what somebody might expect if they were engaged in a, a program like yours? Yeah. So we a lot of our goal is to ultimately help young people find an alternative that's that's fulfilling on the same levels that the negative behavior is but in a positive way mm -hmm. my experience getting sober as a teenager was uh i knew intellectually that drugs and alcohol were having a negative effect on my life and that was that was pretty easy to see if I was willing to take a step back and really look at it. Right. Uh, but for me, the the fear was if I give that up, I'm not going to be happy because it, it was the best thing I'd ever found. It solved all my problems like that. And that's, that's the other scary thing about um, teenagers getting involved in drugs and alcohol, and in my opinion, at least, is it it feels to a lot of them like an instant solution for all of the all of the things that come along with adolescence it's an instant social group you know all of a sudden um yeah fitting in can be as simple as i get high um it's it, it gives meaning it gives uh it provides this false purpose it takes away the the pain and anxiety and discomfort of adolescence um it's fun. That's the biggest thing. It's fun. Right. <laughs> you know, and I, I certainly wasn't in a place as an adolescent where I was thinking through the, uh, the long-term consequences of my fun today. So yeah, so much of what we're trying to do is, is help these guys figure out um, that they actually can be happy and free of substances at the same time. And they can have fun and they can have friends. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there's hope for something better than drugs and alcohol or, or whatever negative behavior they're engaged in. Um, you know, and a, a lot of what I want, a, a lot of what I hope for these guys is that uh, 
we can be an intervention at a time in their lives when they need one and really help them get through the uh, the growing pains of adolescence without something that's going to inhibit their ability to develop. Does that and, make sense? And, yeah. And, well, and it's so important, but I mean, I, I think that the thing that's coming up for me is I wonder what role technology has played in developing our sense of community. I'm going to use that in quotes in this this addiction culture, this substance culture, you know, obviously technology and the ability to connect that way has driven probably a lot of that. But what you're describing to me feels like the outlet that youth are choosing to experience actual real connection outside of using technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I just wonder, like, does the integration of technology, and I don't want to vilify technology because there are many wonderful tools around it, but there is an element of you, you sit and watch a table full of youth and every one of them are on their phone. I'm just wondering how much this substance piece gives them an experience that is different than what they're getting in their day-to-day -day life. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Um, I, I do know that one of the biggest things that we're trying to help the young people that we work with accomplish is establishing meaningful and real connections with other people that are based on something real, right. you know, that aren't just, um, you get high, me too, we're cool. Right. You know I mean, I mean, we have anything else in common. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I make that joke with these guys. Sometimes I, uh, like by the end, when I was using, I, I didn't know anything about my friends other than the drugs they liked, right. you know, <laughs> but it was kind of like, like, do you have parents? Like, what's your middle name? Do you have, do you have like <laughs> hopes or dreams or anything? I don't know. I just know that you, you know, you like sativa more than you like indica, whatever you like party drugs. And that's all we talk about. But it was weird because when, uh, when the drugs were gone or um, we had talked about everything there was to talk about, it would get really awkward and quiet. So those, so those connections weren't based on this, um, this genuine concern for one another. Um, and, and so that's, that's a part of what we're, we're trying to help these guys find, you know, how do you, how do you have a real friendship with somebody? Right. Um, and, and having toured your facility, like I would love for you to talk a little more about what the experience is because, you know, I saw, youth interacting with each other. They were playing basketball. There was a pool table. There was a kitchen. It felt like it could be turned into a nightclub and shut down to have a rave at any given yeah. point. Like, tell us, tell us a little bit about how you're building these connections through experiences that really are focused on not using. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, it's pretty simple. We do every week, we do two support group meetings. Um, which are all solution focused, centered around a, a, a topic um, pertaining to recovery. Uh, and the meetings are funny because they begin and end with loud music. And we, on purpose, try to get them to scream as much as humanly possible before the meeting actually starts. So they can sit there for an hour and not lose their minds because <laughs> right. they're, they're young. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we... After the meeting, uh, we open our facility until 9.30 for them to connect and, and build relationships with each other that are, again, based on recovery. So 
you know, the thing that I want to see when I, when I walk out into our, you know, our office is funny. It's kind of a mullet. The, the front is very business. The back is very party. Um, and you've seen it, you know, the back's the, the warehouse, murals on the wall, sound system, DJ booth, ping pong table. And so the thing I hope to see is, yeah, them playing basketball with each other, playing ping pong um, and, and getting to know each other's stories, you know, really figuring out like, who are you on a real level. Mm-hmm. And then Friday, Saturday nights, we do social functions. So uh, house parties, dances, stuff like that. Um, something A, to compete with the negative stuff that they may otherwise be doing on a Friday or Saturday night. And then more importantly, um, we want them to actually be present and having experiences together. Um, Cause that's so much of what teenagers are looking for. The thing that at least in my experience made a kid cool was the amount of experience they had, right. you know, and the amount of adult experience they Beyond had. Beyond how much you've gotten high or how many drugs you've used. Yep. Or the, the joyride you took in your mom's car or all the, all, all the people that you've um, hooked up with or what, whatever it was. Uh, and so, you know, and, and kids are telling each other those stories at school um so we want to give these guys some some experiences that they'll remember that they'll be able to talk about that'll be meaningful to them um so you know and on a on a kid's first night at full circle uh, the thing that we generally do is sit down with them and go all right what's bringing you here <laughs> what are you what are you dealing with why did you decide to check something like this out because we're strictly voluntary you know requirement of being involved in the program is wanting to be involved in the program it's not something that yeah. your parents can force you to do um and uh you know typically the the close of that initial meeting is are you willing to give this thing a real shot yeah. and look if you give it a real shot and you're not moving in the direction you want to move in the truth is drugs aren't going anywhere they're not going to stop. They're not going to stop growing weed. And fortunately, they're not going to stop selling fentanyl. That's it. That all of those things, they're, they're not moving. Um, but are you willing to take a real chance on on recovery and see if it's better? Because I'm sitting here telling you that I, for me, it is. I'm happier in my life today than I ever was before. Um, so are you willing to take a chance on that? And then well, from there, yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. No, I was just gonna say that's beautiful. I mean, I I really love hearing this and I love the engagement and the finding other ways to have fun and the voluntary piece. I think there there are definitely some components that youth do not want to feel forced into something. Um, They want that autonomy and being able to make that choice. Um, And so I think that's beautiful. And I'm also sitting here thinking about how we are talking about the connection piece and how drugs and alcohol can be some of that. But also, I think there are some people that might have connections with their peers and might be concerned. How do you all recommend or what do you recommend if if somebody was concerned that one of their friends was misusing or overusing or abusing a substance, how would they how should they approach that conversation with them? What should they say to their to their friend? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. And it's, well, it's hugely challenging because um, it, it, one of the things I've gathered is that it seems really natural for young people, especially to uh, 
to want to take total responsibility for for somebody else you know mm -hmm. um and almost it and, and we've worked with a lot of kids who feel like it's on some level their fault that their friend is is having a hard time um and so we you know the message we try to send is look you you can't choose this path for somebody else but what you can do is uh you can be honest and you can speak from the heart um and that's that's some of the stuff that really impacted me um when i was when i was in my uh in my drug use and alcohol use i, I did have friends who uh, sat me down and said things like dude i'm really really worried about you it doesn't seem like you're okay it doesn't seem like you're happy and i know i i can't take that away for you but um but i really hope that you do something about it and i hope that you get help because i'm just terrified to lose my friend which is such a vulnerable conversation to have and especially for for a youth i mean the the thing that really set the stage for me being so impassioned about working for the advancement of youth mental health specifically was just how willing youth today are to talk about their struggles mm -hmm. in a way that most adults aren't and i think it's so inspiring i've often said youth are going to change how the world sees mental health but it is rooted in this, this peer connection of talking about things, which can also have negative impacts also. I'm not diminishing that, but rooted really in this, this I see you and I'm concerned yeah. about you. And I think to show up and have that conversation, you also have to be aware of that may not go the way you want it to go. And you may yes. lose a friendship for a time, um, you know, that, that could make a difference. But, um, but I, know, and I think, Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, you're fine. I just think we have data. I mean, we've we've surveyed youth, we've engaged in focus groups, and you obviously are even sharing now. We hear so much that youth are going to go to youth, right? Mm -hmm. um, hopefully, they have trusted adults. Hopefully, they have people they're engaging with. But most of the time, a youth is going to start by going to a friend or be engaging with a friend. Um, and that's why we think it's important to have these conversations. You know, I think we also want to touch on how parents should respond, but even everything that you've been sharing so far is so focused on that peer component. And that's obviously a huge driving force for people using and misusing. Um, and our goal is to continue to, to write the narrative for how it can also be a way to have that positive connection and show people that you care. And, and I really appreciated your um, your feedback about what was helpful in your journey, but also what you discussed with others that it, you're not responsible for other people. You're, you're, you can be there, you can be caring, but it doesn't mean that it's, it's your responsibility if they make different choices. Yes, it, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think for, for me, what I've found is, um, I, I have a hard time feeling yeah, feeling good about me if I'm not going and having those kind of real vulnerable conversations with with the people in my life, if I have some genuine concern for them, you know, and that's it. We, we hear some version of that echoed with the, uh, with the young people that we work with. So, you know, it, the, the hope is that um, the hope is that everybody's got some friends who are willing to really be honest with them even if that potentially means that they're you know that somebody gets mad mm -hmm. um yeah and i mean that's a vulnerable spot to be in 
You know, I mean, even if you know that your friend's going down a path you don't want, what I'm inspired about in this, well, there's many things I'm inspired about, but what's coming up for me is a lot of the work that you guys do, this is, it follows a a 12-step framework, correct? Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of this peer model, I mean, you run the adolescent program, but also there is an older generation that often serves as sponsors for these younger adolescents is that it's still really got a peer flavor to it regardless, right? So not only is there a connection point among people attending group together, there also is an element of they are being supported by people who are further along in the journey who could be perceived as older peers, right? Yes. Yeah. We, um, we offer support to these guys for up to two years, typically, um, which the, the beauty about that is we got a lot of kids who have anywhere from yeah, six months to two years of continuous recovery who have made some really good progress in their lives. Um, and those guys frequently serve as sponsors and, and mentors to newer participants, um, which is funny, you know, <laughs> yeah. you jokes sometimes from parents who because you know when you're when you're an adolescent it can be easy for um things from adults to sort of go in one ear and out the other right like they do go to their peers a lot more um and so we'll hear stories of you know a a kid's 17 year old sponsor telling them something and then they'll go home to their parents and be like guess what i figured out today that i need to be more honest (laughs) (laughs) seriously we've been talking about that at dinner every night (laughs) right um but yeah it's it's adolescence right they'll they'll hear things from peers that they'll they'll never hear from the adults in their life that's not universally true but there's a lot of them for whom it is so you know i'm sorry go ahead amy no, you're fine. With that being said, I mean, what advice do you have for parents on how to engage with this, knowing that we have this data and, and we're, you know, you're giving us real, real life experiences here that peers are going to go to peers or peers might go to a mentor who's a year or two older than them and, and hear that differently. But how, how do you all engage families or what is your um, advice for families if, if they're concerned about their child or loved one? Yeah, um, I'm really glad you asked that because I think that's that's a critical part of the it's a critical factor for most young people. Um, the thought that came to mind was, look, these are some of the most challenging issues that families ever face, uh, and, and I'm not a parent, you know, so I, I can't speak firsthand from that. Uh, from that place, but I have seen a lot of families go through this process. I've seen a lot of parents um, figure out how to respond to this thing. And and what comes to mind is trust your gut and courage. Um, because yeah, it's, it, it's just challenging. And, and there's truth to, you know, uh, a lot of families are in a position where their kids aren't necessarily being transparent with them. Um, because in a lot of cases, transparency means I'll have to stop doing this, you know, and that's, um, that's, that's not bad either. I, I think, uh, yeah. So kids are, you know, these kind of behaviors frequently lead to kids, um, not 
not being honest with their families for one. And then for another thing, you know, I think it's easy for parents to go, Oh, well, I was, I was doing that same thing when I was his age. And, uh, but it, it, it's a different world. You know, the stuff that kids are using today is it's not the same stuff that um, most parents were using when they were young. Uh, Let's you talk know. about that for a second. Cause I think that's so important there, there's a couple of things that are resonating out of this, but since you just brought mm-hmm. that up, let's talk about the differences in drugs today versus what drugs of a different generation grew up with, because they are not at all the same. Mm-hmm. Like, can you share a little more contextually around what is different about drugs today versus in the past? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, so... Fentanyl, for one, that's um, obviously newer to the to the drug market, um, and that's a, a terrifying one. Uh, the other big one is, you know, the the THC content that these guys are uh, using today is massively higher than what most people were were smoking in high school. Um, so you know, a lot of the, the kids that we work with are, are using uh, wax and, you know, 90% THC, which is, that's just a huge amount. And, and it's very different from, uh, you know, the, the 3% THC to, uh, I don't know, 9 or 10% THC that a lot of parents were probably using when they were teenagers. Um, so, And also to your point, talking about wax, I mean, the means of delivery are so different too. I mean, I know Mm -hmm. vape pens are very prevalent. And I mean, from what I've experienced, you've got kids that are getting high all day long on incredibly concentrated doses of THC Yes, that literally is kind of unfathomable to somebody who has not experienced it. Yes, absolutely. Um, Yeah, yeah. The method of delivery is, is different and it can be sneakier <laughs> you know so i hear stories of kids sitting in um sitting in math class with a with a wax pen in their sleeve just getting high looking their teacher dead in the eye so yeah so it's just, it's just a different world and I, and i don't i don't think we fully understand what the the long-term implications of some of that are If there is a benefit of legalization of marijuana, there are dollars that are going towards researching this. So I feel like we will learn what the the negative Mm -hmm. consequence is. And I think it's going to be staggering and it's going to be profound when we actually do learn that in real data and real statistics over time. But, you know, regardless of that, what I'm hearing from you is it is prevalent, it is a problem, and it is definitely affecting our youth today. Yes, absolutely. And I, I wanted to, if it's okay, I wanted to go back and say one more thing about the, the parent piece, just mm-hmm. because I think that's so important. Um, the thing that I've seen families do has been, um, well, ultimately, trust their gut, because we tell parents this all the time, you, you know your kid better than we ever will. And you're a parent and I'm not. Um, and if you think there's something wrong, there probably is, but you know, it, it's so easy. And, and my family at, at points struggled with versions of this. It's so easy to, um, not want to acknowledge that 
and not want to acknowledge that, okay, something really might be wrong here um, because it's an incredibly scary proposition, you know? So denial is a, it's a real thing. Um, and it's, I think, a very natural response to uh, the thing you love more than anything in the whole world not being okay and not necessarily being able to fix it. So, you know, um, yeah. one thing that comes up that really was validated by our research that we've done over the last many years um, was we we did a survey recently that wrapped up this summer and we asked a question around, you know, youth's perspective of their mental health and over 70 percent of them rated it as fair or poor. And then we asked the same question of parents about their perception of their youth's mental health. And they thought it was much better than what youth are reporting. There seems to be a pretty significant disconnect between how parents perceive their youth and what's actually happening. And I think there's not to shame any parent. There's many things that are happening. But what we see over and over and again, and I hear from kids time and again, is they want to talk to their parents. Neither one of them seem to know how to make this connection around some mm. of these really tough topics. Like, how do we open the door to start having conversations that hopefully prevent or preempt the things that you're dealing with? But like, from your perspective, what what's the starting point for parents and youth to actually see each other and recognize that maybe something's going on we need to deal with? Yeah. Um, well, I think I... I go back to um, I go back to honesty and love. Mm -hmm. I think um, you know the some of the uh, conversations that I really remember with my family were were very vulnerable ones, and it was typically initiated by my parents. <laughs> you know, because um, I was I, I was just in a place where. I was uh, hell bent on continuing to do what I was doing and, and something trying to stand between me and um, drugs and alcohol was sort of like trying to stand between a dog and a bone. It was the, it, because that just felt like the only answer that I had at that point. Um, but I, I think my parents really listening to their gut and going, Do we love you more than anything and we're terrified for you. Yeah. And we're going to get you some support and we're going to get you some help um kind of whether you like it or not <laughs> like we're, well, we're doing right well and on that note I think there are probably varying levels of times where parents do intervene or share those pieces you know for families who are listening or youth at, at what point is it something that you work on by yourself or within your family and at, at what point do you seek professional treatment um and and do you have any recommendations for people about when when things are at a place that it would feel important to make sure that you're engaging with a professional? Yeah, um, I look, and there's going to be a, a, probably a lot of different opinions on this. Um, I think it's I think it's worth getting a professional involved when uh yeah when you, when your gut's going off when it seems like something's not okay um because you know getting a because that's the other challenge with these these kind of situations is 
um, they frequently sit too close to the heart to be seen objectively. Mm. You know? um, but getting another set of eyes and getting some objective perspective and feedback, I, I think can be instrumental in a, in a lot of cases um, and families getting the support that they need. So, well, and I just yeah. want to say, you know, we have a mutual connection that that actually brought you and I together to have this conversation. And I want to affirm and her child had had gone through full circle and they had experienced a myriad of treatment options before getting here. But really the reality of one of the things I took away from their sharing was how important that parent component and structure at full circle was in just mm-hmm. really illuminating the challenges, but more importantly, recognizing that that you're not alone and there are other parents who are going through exactly what you are or something similar. Like what I what I learned from, from speaking with them was um, it was a phenomenal education that you were offering parents at Full Circle also to really mm-hmm. understand the prevalence and the challenges and the issues but also the connection and community of other people who are struggling with similar issues. Yes. Yeah. That's, um, that's a huge, a huge part of what we're trying to do. Um, we want to provide, cause it's a, it's a lonely place. That's the other thing. Um, the thing that I've seen a lot of families go through is, you know, ending up feeling like there's something wrong with me. You know, why, why is my kid struggling and Timmy down the street is getting into Harvard and whatever, like, and it's all over book. And uh, so I must be doing something wrong as a, as a parent. Um, And that can also make it harder to uh, fully assess the situation because nobody wants to feel like a bad parent. Um, So one of the big things that we tell families is, look, you didn't cause it. You can't, you can't cure it. You can't fix it. And, and you can't control it, but the question is, how do you respond to it? Mm-hmm. You know, this this issue is not, it, it's not your fault. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It's a, the question moving forward is, uh, yeah, how do you, how do you get support in this journey and how do you respond? Um, well, that's ultimately but what if I'm the parent that's struggling with my own substance misuse or has a history with that? Like, you know, I think comparison is a thief. I mean, it's a trap flat out. But the mm-hmm. reality is, is I think some of these things really push against parents and adults having to own their own side of the street and keep it clean. I'm I'm guessing you guys see that probably fairly often. Like I can imagine the guilt of that probably weighs heavy on when to intervene or not. Yes, it, it does. Yeah, it's a, and that's a really good point. Um yeah, we uh, one of the, one of the topics that's discussed a lot amongst the parents is the the three C's, right? So, you didn't cause it, can't cure it, can't control it. Um, and one of the other things that's talked about is there there is a fourth C, which is contributing, right? So, and and that becomes a part of the question for a lot of families: how do I how do I make sure that I'm not contributing to this? Right. Um, so. You know, and in situations like that, I, I always think it's, um, I guess the, the message that I think, I hope a lot of families get is um, let yourself off the hook and, and take a serious look at what do we need to do from here? 
you know, and, and if substance misuse is a part of the equation, then get some support and help for that. So that way, um, which may include support for yourself, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was what I was, that was what I was getting at with that. Like if, right. if you're a parent, I mean, aside from what they can get at full circle, I mean, it may, it may yes. open, may open Pandora's box that everybody could use some support. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. So, you know, if, if there's a parent who's struggling with their own uh, substance use issue, I, I would absolutely say get, get some help for that, get some support for that. Um, so that way, uh, yeah, that way you're not in a position where whatever your child's issue is, is more difficult to respond to or where you potentially feel shackled by some guilt because that's not, not a place anybody wants to be. Yeah. Well, it's also so, really beautiful well, to lead by example. Yes. Well, and I, I'm thinking of this piece too, when we're talking about treatment, we're talking about recovery, whether it's for parents or youth or both, um, you know, as an LCSW, I know that relapse is typically part of a recovery process for folks mm -hmm. and can have varying levels. You know, you're talking about the fourth C of contributing, but can you talk about what parents can do to best support minimizing relapse um, or the number of relapse occurrences and ways that they can be um, involved and have an awareness of, of kind of the reality of the recovery process. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's another that's another joke we make is that, look, if you hand us a stinky, disrespectful, obnoxious, rebellious, self-centered teenager with teenager who does drugs, we will probably hand you back a stinky, rebellious, obnoxious, self-centered, disrespectful teenager. You know, like recovery doesn't, it doesn't cure adolescence. Mm -hmm. um, and it's easy to have that expectation. You know, like if I can get my kid off of drugs and get him some support, then, it, you know, next week he'll be the president of whatever club at school and he'll be fully employed and he'll never be late again to anything and you know like that kind of thing um so a, a lot of what we we encourage families to do is have um have patience with with the process you know adolescence cures itself um with with time and so knowing that it's worth making sure that um you're you're picking the battles that really matter you know and not wasting them on uh, on things that you know. Realistically, a lot of these guys are probably going to figure out and grow out of as a as a part of their very natural maturing and development. Um, so, you know, pick the battles that matter. Uh, know that kids are still kids are going to be kids. <laughs> Sobriety doesn't fix that. Um, be patient with them love them like hell but uh whatever the you know whatever you decide those battles are that are really important to fight stand behind those you know um so can i ask yeah. a question just to make sure that i'm because i am not as familiar with your program i know jason came for a tour and i, I heard amazing things about it um is your is the program open to um anyone I'm, i heard you say guys a couple of times and so i wanted to clarify for the listeners is it um open for non-binary individuals um 
Males, females, et cetera. Okay. So I just want to clarify when we're that people are aware that the program is available for anyone. Oh, yes. hundred percent. You have a big enough table to serve everyone. Yes. I love it. I love it. You know, and in, and in the instances that somebody, I think the thing that's coming up for me and recognizing, you know, there is an element in recovery about an individual's willingness to, to get mm -hmm. help and to get better. You know, and and I know developmentally there are places that maybe we've met a youth at a space that they don't see that this is a problem like their parents does, or they don't want to get better. How do you address those situations when you've got a youth that is adamant or defiant about this is not a problem? I don't I don't want to get help. I don't think I need to get help. Like, what do you do in those situations? Yeah, absolutely. That's a so with that. Um, I'll share some of my own experience because I was 100% that kid. Uh, there was a, a long time where I, I just had no interest. I had no interest in um, getting help. I had no interest in changing my life. Uh, I didn't think, you know, and I was convinced that I had like a, a school problem, a parent problem, a cop problem. You know, like the, the problem was- Not anything, your problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there, <laughs> I mean, I just I thought some pretty, pretty outlandish things, but, um, but I think what, what ended up happening for me was there was a combination of, uh, of different factors. One was my parents getting really involved in a, in a support system that could help them figure out how to navigate this. Um, and, and that was a critical piece because as they, you know, looked at how do we respond to this in an effective way, um, that definitely had an effect on me. So my parents got involved in a support system um, and they did a lot of those things I was talking about earlier. Like they, they picked the battles that really mattered to them. Um, and they had some logical consequences associated with me crossing those lines. And they gave me a ton of opportunities to get help and get support. Um, and so what ended up happening was when I got to a place where um, the pain of the way that I was living was uh, pretty tremendous, I knew that there was a better way. And I knew that I could change. You know, had they not given me all those opportunities to experience recovery firsthand, I don't think I would have known that. You know, so um, that you eventually came to your own bottom. Yes, yes, I did. But um, I think, yeah, my my parents doing all of the work that they did was a lot of why that ended up happening when I was seventeen, instead of much farther down the road. Yeah, that's just beautiful. Thank you for your vulnerability. This has been an incredible conversation. I know you've got other things to do and we could probably talk for three hours about this, but um, I am I'm so grateful to, for the service that you're giving to the community um, in helping people stay sober and or, or get sober and find whatever they're getting from your program. Um, you know, I know there's a myriad of paths there, but um, thank you for your service. It means a lot. Grateful to be a part of it. I appreciate that.
thank you so much for your vulnerability and sharing with us your personal journey and how that has informed you as far as the work you do today. And um, I can tell that youth are probably, it's very easy for you to connect with them. I can tell why you're in the role that you're in and that um, youth are, are able to connect with you and that you're real with them um, about these pieces. So thank you for that. Um, to wrap up, we always we always do finish with one question for yeah. anyone who's on our podcast. So what what does nobody's perfect mean to you? The the phrase? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you had to think of what nobody's perfect means to you, what is that? I I really love that. Um yeah, I think for me that means Give me a second with that one. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, we put you on the spot with that one, so. No, yeah, you're, you're good. Uh, I think it means let yourself off the hook a little bit, which, um, which obviously isn't the isn't the same as don't change anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't get support or don't make adjustments. Um, just, you know, I, I think the experience for me in recovery and the experience for my family as well was ultimately, uh, we did the best we could with what we had until we realized that it, it wasn't working anymore. Um, but that, that wasn't the same as I was a bad kid. It wasn't the same as they were bad parents. Um, it, it didn't mean that at all. It just, it just meant that we needed to, um, readjust the sales a little bit that, to me that's a, a pretty consistent part of life as a human being so there's a lot so, of yeah. in that answer yeah yeah thank you um and and that concludes our time here today thank you for being part of nobody's perfect a community dedicated to supporting inspiring and empowering youth and families we hope you've enjoyed this transformative conversation today and together we're dismantling stigma and providing solutions for the mental health and well-being challenges we all can encounter. Be sure to join us every other week on Cozy101.com imperfect or find us on your favorite streaming platform to continue embracing our shared human experience. Also, if you haven't done so, find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Nobody's Perfect Community. I'm your host, Jason Hopkins, and it's been a pleasure sharing this story with you today. Stay connected, stay inspired, and remember, nobody's perfect because perfection isn't real. Your story is. Until next time.